Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Thanks for tuning in. You can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. You can communicate with me using the Connect tab at the website or just write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. On to today's episode. Can developmental psychology help us respond more effectively to climate change? My guests, Terry O'Fallon and Gail Hochachka, both well-known and respected in the integral world, say yes. In this episode, we discuss Gail's PhD project at the University of Oslo, where she has utilized Terry's stages model to gain insight into how people at various developmental stages make meaning about climate change. Gail's findings were published in the prestigious peer-reviewed journal Global Environmental Change. I link to the article at the website. In this episode, we also hear from Terry about how climate change is viewed at the integral stages of teal and turquoise and above. I hope you will be inspired, as I was, to learn how these two pioneering women are creating a new basic science of understanding perspectives that will help humanity adapt and indeed transform in response to our climate challenge. Here's my conversation with Terry O'Fallon and Gail Hochachka, starting with Gail explaining the project. So, so Terry and I got creative and came up with a modif- what I call the modified stages assessment to look at that data. And when we did it, I, I just, I guess I wasn't, you know, empirical studies, like actual real studies of um, developmental psychology in the area of climate change is rare to come by. And so I wasn't sure what we would see. And what we saw was really fascinating. So I ended Ooh. up writing, yeah. So I ended up writing it up and like that ended up getting published, you know, in quite a, uh, in my field of human geography in quite a high level journal, which was very, you know, in a way, you know, ignorance is bliss, rookies have it easy, right? People said, try for there and it ended up getting through a peer review and that was quite, you know, a nice rigorous peer review that improved it. Oh, good. Yeah, and then got us to the point where over the course of this, um, Terry started mentioning this idea of a specialty protocol where you actually do use the 36 sentence stem um, and maybe we could describe more about that if you have any questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> let me just digest what you said. Right, right. Okay. okay. Um, you are using Terry's stages model, S-T-A-G-E-S, which is the name of her model of, of adult development or actually human development. Yes. And we'll get to that, Terry. Uh, yeah. We have done uh, a couple of shows with you on, on it. And so, you know, there's a, a link to those as well. So you pour data that you have into this model or look at data you have through this lens. We synthesize it. What is, what is Terry doing or any of her scores using stages? What are they actually doing to assess written work? Right. Okay. Right? And so, we, so for this particular article, it came down to the object of awareness, mm-hmm. the complexity of thought. Mm-hmm. And the scope of time. And that's, that's what we use. Now, her model, when she assesses a 36-sentence stem 
it actually, it, it's a bit more nuanced than that, but that's why I call this a modified one. This right. is one that you could use you, with those three. You could use that anywhere. If I'm going to bring this, if I'm going to, you know, make the claim that this should be brought into climate change work, we need to get really fluid with a very practical and kind of on the ground way to work with it. Right. And so using those three um, characteristics. And again, uh, those three characteristics are? The object of awareness. Okay, the yeah. object of awareness, the thing we're looking at, the thing we're describing. Exactly. And so, the, so this is based on Terry's model as well. Gross objects, subtle, sorry, gross, which is concrete objects, like yes. it's raining, right. such as it's raining. Um, subtle objects, which is more abstract. Okay, like, such as? Um, increased precipitation. That's, yeah. a more, that's a more abstract way of, of understanding that phenomenon. And then something meta-aware. So uh, meta-awareness is a, you know, awareness about awareness. Right. So it's, it's the object is, a, is, a, is um, far more subtle, let's say. Right. And, and, right. And so you, very, and you can yeah. tell this through uh, a written language. Right. Okay. Right. Great. Yeah. I mean, just simply in, in the words that are used. And, you know, in any case, any of us are attuning to how someone is construing reality. Like if you talk with my seven-year-old and, you know, this morning, for example, I'm taking her to school and I say, she goes, what's your interview about? And I said, well, it's about consciousness and climate change. And then I, I, I take a breath and I say, when consciousness is, and then she goes, she goes, oh, look, mom, my, what did she say? I can see my breath when I breathe because it was cold out, you know? And so that was just, it, you know, it wasn't, it was over her head. Right. right? Yeah. And so I, had to, <laughs> I mean, that was just literally, you know, 20 minutes right. ago. So I had to kind of get back into her meaning making frame, which is more concrete than mine. Right. Yes. And so yes. I let, I let the conversation about just go for a stretch. Right. Oh. So, so these are the, you know, we're, we may not be used to using those terms about it or, or, or tracking it, but right. we, are, we are usually attuned to how people are putting together meetings. Yes. Yeah. So that's object of awareness. Cool. So that's the first thing you're looking at. The second one is complexity of language, you said? Complexity of thought. Of thought. So, and what I mean by that, um, and it relates a bit, of course, with object of awareness, but complexity of thought is... Um, is, is thought put together in an atomistic way? Is it fragmented? So is it um, bits and pieces of data, or bits and pieces of understanding that aren't, there's no lines drawn between them. They're not taken as a whole or as a system, right? So that would be um, one level of thinking. You know, one way to think of it is, you know, linear. So cause and effect, X plus B equals C. And there's, you know, there starts to be sort of a, me a mechanistic framing of how meaning is understood. So it's not just it's raining, but there's increased precipitation and it is da-da-da-da-da and it is da-da-da-da-da. And so it, you know, it, it frames out a more sequential understanding of what is happening. Yeah, so the third one would be uh, a later um, complexity of thought would be a more contextual uh, Frame, uh, way of thinking about something. So there's a more, you know, one way to think of it instead of A plus B equals C, the thinking would be it depends. You know, it's increased precipitation, but it also depends on da da da. So it places the thinking in a context. So that's that's how I was working with it, just to give you an idea of what yeah. I meant by yeah. by complexity of thought. Yeah, and fantastic. Then the third, yeah, and then the third one, and these lead into each other, of course. But the third one 
was scope of time. And, and this one, you know, Terry can explain more. This one usually is a bit like a, a, a product of the scoring that she does. It's not one of the things she tends to use, but it's actually quite relevant in climate change because, you know, seeing the rain changing right now is different than ability to compare that with right now to the past. And which is again, different than right now to the past to the future, which is again, different than past, future, past, present, future generations, which again is different than that over evolutionary time or even a sense of a perception of like timelessness. So that, that dimension is important, I believe, for consciousness in regards to how we make meaning about climate change. Yeah. Wow. So or anything, really. Or, any, or anything, really. Yeah. yeah. And that's the beauty of the, these three points is that, mm. uh, you know, they can be applied to anything Absolutely. and to written yeah. language. That seems, seems like a big deal, Terry. Well, yes, this fits my three questions really, really well. All of them do. Uh, you know, the uh, concrete, subtle, and metaware objects is the first question. The complexity of thought really deals with two parts of the question. One is, is it complexity on an individual level or is it complexity on a, on a, on a collective level? And the third is uh, co a complexity of thought, which also includes a time frame, because your, your thought becomes much more complex and much more uh, nuanced when you can see far out in time. And we know that, you know, that uh, some stages see in the moment, some stages see, uh, you know, about five years out, some see uh, with uh, three generations, some see with five or more, some see historically, some see with infinity and eternity. So those fit, those those three questions very, very well. And uh, what I remember is that Gail sent me these photographs with the comments under them that people had written, and I scored them all because I can with those three questions, and I sent them back to Gail. And I think what, what Gail did that was, was so beautiful is that she put those three questions in terms that everybody can understand and uh, not, not, in, not as a, a scoring rule, <laughs> which is what I think of, but as... as uh, ways of looking at these processes that everybody can in, in a kind of language that people can read about and, and understand better. So, yeah. but they all, uh, they all come right out of the three questions very, very well in wow. my view. Yeah. yeah. And well, I know you may have made some changes to some of the uh, scoring that I did on those photos, Gail, but uh, uh, that's what I remember participating mm -hmm. in first. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was, I think I scored them actually first and then you actually oh, yes. scored them again and adjusted a couple. It was really a great learning experience for me to see what you saw yes. in how you were scoring. And it was only maybe three or four that you, you, you adjusted. Yes. But yes. it was really helpful and very interesting. Yeah. Well, so a very interesting and powerful sounds like uh, a procedure here. Mm -hmm. So then what did you find, Gail? Yeah, and maybe if I can just take one step back, and I will get to your answer, but or to your question, but I just want to take one step back and, and just point out how enormous climate change is and how naturally it's, it's so almost ungraspable. Like, where do we find it? You know, it, it almost, it's been referred to as a multiple object, a hyper object. You know, even some have said that we can't, we, we bring different meaning to bear on it, but some have said we can't ever really know it. So it's a particularly rich um, area to look at meaning making. In, in a way, I mean, this is similar to many things that we experience, but particular to climate change, 
people kind of grab what fragment they can and then build a whole, a whole meaning making about that. And then you try and go into an international meeting and have a conversation about collaboration, right? So it's, it, it's complicated, right? It, it, right from the get-go. What we find in climate change research is there is, and this is really exciting, there is a, a robust area um, more and more as, as many researchers, whether they're coming specifically from science or sustainability science, or from the more social science perspective, we're all realizing that this issue is bigger than we realized and is gonna need a transformative change to really get at what it means. And so, you know, there's, there's more research into the social and the cultural dimensions and the psychological dimensions of it. Um, what there isn't is much work with a developmental psychology perspective. Yeah. So that has been, that is, I believe, a bit of a missing knowledge set that is really exciting to think um, what it might share and what it might contribute to this emerging right. study. Well, aren't there antibodies to developmental, the idea of the interiors of cultures and people developing? Isn't that a sort of a hard sell? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. That's what they say. And there's... Um, Are people like receiving it and getting it? And You know, it's a bit divided. I definitely have people question me on it. We're caring, we have to, you know, as Ken Wilber says, we're always situated between the karma and the creativity of every moment. And so there is some karma that we need to kind of clean up here. And there has been, you know, a lot of um, harm done with developmental thinking, you know, that I believe has to be acknowledged well, skillfully, ethically, before we can really get to the creativity. So I, you know, I'm very honest at that at that you know that juncture here oh god bless right? you gail i mean I, I feel like i'm hearing evolution happen oh, that's in real really time sweet. as i listen that's to you sweet. oh that's really sweet i mean i so i'll just say i mean there is there is you know critical views that come up there and in my sense they should like we, we need them in the space so so i find that there's something compelling about these ideas that if you know if they're held with that critical view then we can really get somewhere here. So the, the findings were really interesting. And this is, just a, as I said, a pilot project. Like I'm hoping to do much more with this work. Um, but just to give you a little sense of it, as I was saying, you know, climate change being such a hyper object that- in a Hi way, Hyper object. Hyper object. Which means- Like massively distributed in space and time. So that in a way it's, it verges on the unknowable. So, wow. you know, or wicked problem. That's another way people say it, wicked problem. They're, they're getting to the same thing. Like the tools we have that we normally use as an adult are incommensurate with the complexity of the issue. And that's what I'm meaning. I'm kind of summing that all up with the word wicked problem or hyperobject, right? What we are seeing is that as we gain in the complexity of meaning making about you know, about this, hyper, this object of climate change, the slippery concept of climate change, we can essentially um, know, you know, more fully know that complexity. And that, that kind of hinges on the subject's meaning making. So, so does that make sense? So the run, subject, run that by me again. Yeah. So, the, so as the subject's meaning making. So as my meaning making. Right. Okay. As your meaning making, as my meaning making, as our meaning making gets increasingly more complex, yep. 
then more of the of the hyper object or the wicked problem, which is climate change, can be seen. Absolutely, yes. And and like that seems so straightforward, but it actually is. We skip over that all the time. I know we do. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, I mean so, who can argue with? Let's bring in more perspectives, basically. You know, there's not much argument about it if it's recognized. But I think the problem, perhaps, is that. You know, even if we're studying the psychology of climate change, we're still largely looking at what people believe about climate change, not looking as, as them to know how the meaning is being, is being organized. Hallelujah. So looking as is a very different thing. And it, so one of, I, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but one of the really often, you know, approaches to climate change is, is based on an information deficit model or a knowledge deficit model. And, you know, well-meaning climate researchers or, or, you know, or policymakers actually just believe people don't have the information. Of course. So they kind of like, dis, you know, they, they disseminate the information thinking it's going to be picked up and understood and all will be well. But it doesn't, under, it doesn't it's not taking stock of how our people, look as how your people are, 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 are making meaning and you come up with a very different range of how, yes. how they can receive yes. this information and yes. understand it. And if I may say, I mean, one of my critiques of the environmental movement is that the information is then delivered in a higher and higher decibel. Right. You know, with a higher and higher fear factor, because you got to listen, because I have this information. Well, good luck with that. There's more to the story here. Yeah, exactly. And so... With that recognition, then a lot, a, lot of, a lot of things become possible. And the ideas I presented in this paper, based on the findings, was that you know, if, you're, if, you, if you recognize, we could, use the, we could use these as worldviews, like traditional worldviews, modern worldviews, and postmodern worldviews. When we applied those questions of object of awareness, complexity of thought, and scope of time to this, to this data, what we just what what we found were these were presence of these three worldviews in what what could have assumed to be sort of a homogenous community, but there was even, nevertheless this great range of meaning making about climate change. So what that presents when you when you can see the situation in that way is you can have greater possibility of alignment between you know climate re- change researchers or practitioners coming into a region, coming into a community or or, or working in a society there can be better alignment. So it's, you know, you're not just kind of, you know, sending the same information with higher and higher decibels of, of, of volume and it not being picked up and you're frustrated why. You know, the, the frustration of climate change being understood as weather change, that's going to persist for a long time. And best re- understand why that's the case than just lament what is the case, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, if people who are thinking concretely and don't have a big dimension of time, the, the weather is the weather. Yeah. You know, it's cold here in Boulder today. I could use a little global warming. Totally. You yes. know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so how would you align, if you were a climate change practitioner, let's say, or a policymaker, how would you better align with that than just lament it and be frustrated by it and just try and put your climate right. science on that person? So, so alignment is one of them. And it's really on the, on the, on the practitioner's side, you know, to, 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 to grasp what's actually going on and align better. And then um, I, I, building on the notion of translation. So what if someone were to translate their meaning making, you know, whatever they make meaning of in terms of climate change, how would they build that out into sort of an adapt, a, adaptation strategy or, or 
or, or a way to respond to climate change, but not from climate science, but from within their own meaning making. And, right. and they refer to that as, as not just translation, but sovereignty. What if you remained, what if you, what if you re- kept the sovereignty over your meaning making? and built out solutions from that space. So those were those are some of the findings that kind of flowed out from that preliminary pilot project. Wow. Terry, any comment at this point? Well, I just admire so much what Gail has done with this and it it has helped open our own uh, understanding of the developmental stages uh, and and has given us the possibility of looking at where we can actually support really critical areas with our specialty protocols. Because this is- And, 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 and let me stop you there, Terry. You've, okay. you've mentioned this a couple of times, your specialty protocols. We call them specialty protocols. We have a general protocol that we've worked with uh, um, uh, and we've adapted it uh, uh, in the beginning so that, that there were would be response uh, stems that would uh, relate to the four quadrants so that people would give balanced responses. And so we took nine stems out of our uh, the old general protocol that, that Lovinger and Suzanne used and changed it just enough so that there would be an average of about eight, eight stems in each, you know, that would evoke responses from each quadrant. Uh, we we did that with uh, uh, 350 protocols from the stages model and a 900 from the, the, the earlier models, and the Crombox was beautiful. It was just uh, the internal consistency between them was good. So once we did that, we realized well we can take nine stems out of that protocol and put new ones in, and it's not that hard because the scoring system. Uh, is identical regardless of what kind of a stem you put in there. And it also is, uh, a, we're able to score any kind of, we just use those same questions even on ordinary text, which is what I did when I scored, uh, rescored um, uh, uh, Gail's pictures in their comments. But I didn't realize at the time, we did one on leadership and it came out really well. We did one on love, it came out really well. We did want a specialty protocol on education. It came out really well. But when mm-hmm. I saw what Gail was doing on climate change, this is a very different kind of a topic because mm-hmm. it's a, it is a global topic. It, mm-hmm. is, it is something Happening that, over time. I mean, yes. it really does stretch the, it stretches. the consciousness. So, uh, so I, uh, you know, Gail and I were thinking together about this and, and decided to do uh, a, a specialty protocol on, cl- on climate change which would uh, allow us to change six stems in the general protocol, but those six stems would relate specifically to climate change. And uh, uh, the good thing about this is because Gail is doing her dissertation, she has an IRB for it. And so she got enough people to take this specialty protocol so that we could get a Cronbox Alpha on it. And sure enough, it turned out internally consistent. And the other thing that happened with it is that, that even if we took the six climate change stems out themselves, they would still measure, they still have good internal consistency. And those six stems can be used uh, you know, if people don't want to take a 36 sentence inventory, they can just do six and we'll get tons of information about climate change just using those. Mm-hmm. 
And the good thing about having a sentence completion test is that people use their own words to describe this. And because they do, it's almost like an interview. So mm-hmm. uh, what we can do is, is look at how, how do we um, look at all of those, all of the completions that come up at, at let's say, the, the uh, um, traditional stage. And what kind of things do people say at that stage? So we can make categories about what are the ways that people look at climate change, given these six stems. And then we can look at how they, how they uh, work at the modern stage. We look at how they, how they, what kind of categories come up at the postmodern stage. And even some of hers came up at even in the matter where tears. So we can start seeing what is the trajectory of the ways that people see this. And um, there's a lot of, of research that we need to to do on this yet but but uh that's what one of the areas that we're kind of seeing as we look at these completions at these different developmental levels and and so of course there's there's 36 sentence stems times 20 people that's quite a few sentence stems or even six times 20 is you know uh uh, over a hundred responses that people have looked at, and that gets us started with some of the basic things that people think about climate change uh, that is representative of their perspective. So um, I'm hoping that we'll be able to do more uh, digging into the the categories on how do how do people what do they actually say about climate change mm-hmm. and then this is something that uh you know i think as gail mentioned earlier this is something that gail can and other people that go in to work with communities and the individuals about climate change uh, can know what topics are salient at each developmental level and where they begin and, and where it kind of uh, shuts off at. And also to recognize that there are perspectives that we probably haven't even seen yet, like in the MetaWare tier, uh, you know, and some perspectives came up there. And these are surprise perspectives and perspectives that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we haven't known about yet. So it, it's exciting wow. to look at, at this. Yeah, it really is. Well, well Gail, um, fill us in. Uh, what do they say and what have you learned? Yeah, good question. Um, for starters, I'll say that the actual um, analysis of the specialty protocol, I've not yet done. So you're going to have to wait for part two. On that, okay. Um, we've take, we've all. I know it's exciting. We've all taken a look, and it's really exciting to see that um, the work the work in the pilot project, as I had said when I went got up to pluralist, in terms of meaning making. This one goes as as Terry was sort of um, hinting hinting at goes into the meta aware tier. So it's going to be really interesting to look at that data. And I, I don't want to preempt those, those results before I have a chance to really analyze it well. Oh, please. Um, <laughs> really? I mean, what's your intuition? I mean, just blue sky it a little bit. Well, blue sky it, I, I can build. So put it this way. If what I said earlier holds, <laughs> yes. if what I said, which, which we would think it would, right? Um, mainly because my little pilot is is represented like it's uh, re- reflects many of the findings of other um, other work that Terry's done. Um, but if we presumably if we can take more perspectives, so our perspective taking increases, our objects of awareness become more and more subtle, and such that we're aware of our awareness. Suddenly, we're in a and we can our our, our scope of time 
we, we, we blast the walls off and, and as well as the ceiling and the floor, we're in a very different space for making meaning about something as complex as climate change. And so I suspect a few things will happen. One big one is that you will look back on reality and realize, oh, we're all making meaning. We're all constructing meaning. And there'll be a greater, a greater recognition of the spectrum of meaning making that is happening. And so that alone can start to close this gap between my way is the right way and what is your way? Like, I don't right. get it. Right. right. So that gap is kind of, I hate to say it, coming from Canada, looking at you guys, politically, there's a problem right now. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have similar problems. There might, maybe not, there, we have similar problems. I'm not going to point fingers, but we need to close these gaps. Yeah. And, so, and we're not really yeah. going to do it until we can have some sort of way of seeing the constructed nature of meaning, not, not just bouncing off what someone said, but trying to kind of, you know, rest with why they're putting meaning together that way. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's a greater connection and a greater compassion that becomes available. So first of all, I think that is prob- we're probably going to see that happen at these later stages. The other thing that we're going to be able to see is more of climate change itself. And so it isn't, it isn't, you know, it is not going to just be rain, more rain than, than usual for this time of year or something. You know, we will we'll be able to see this sort of complex adaptive nature of these things set in their constructions, you know, which includes how we have constructed this very problem. We've constructed this issue, both biophysically as well as how we're framing it in our meaning making. And that ushers in a whole different set of competencies and, and, and agency really to do something about it. So, you know, I think it's exciting times. I've never ever imagined that I would hear the, the calls for transformative change being as widespread as I am in the, what I call the, the progressive mainstream. And, you know, you know, in a way we're all wanting, and I, when I say all, I mean researchers and practitioners and activists, we're all looking for what it means to meet that call for transformative change. If we can bring in developmental psychology as one of the knowledge sets in this endeavor, I think we're going to have some really exciting times ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Me too. How exciting. Yeah. So Gail, how do the traditionalists make meaning about climate change? Yeah, that's a, that's great. Well, I mean, and modernists and I I know postmodernists, but I'd be still interested in hear your framing of it. Sure. Well, you know, starting with the traditionalists, um, what we find is that meaning is is organized in in bits and pieces in that atomistic way, and it's in the moment. And the complexity of thought is fairly um, fairly fragmented. It's you know it really is weather change. And so you know the the there's a what I would say it, this is now lifting off of my data as written and just talking to you about my impression is there's. There's sort of this honest, raw, genuine, like the well is dry, you know, that, that's not right, you know, or like we can't, we can't plant beans, you know, just sort of the, the raw, genuine, authentic accounting in the moment. Now, whether that is put together in sort of a logical frame or a logical meaning making happens a little later. So yeah. in the modernist um, way of looking at it, what happens with this modern worldview is that suddenly they didn't just include, you know, w- weather events or, or, or direct immediate impacts of those weather events. And instead it was looking at changes in practices culturally and economically that had effect, like that had the cost and effect results of 
of those actions to evoke a climate change. So pesticide use, you know, or increased erosion or, you know, greater contamination of rivers that were, were feeding crops, you know. So suddenly there was an amalgam of, um, of cause and effect that was being seen within the context of climate change that, that, was, that was arising as climate change. And so at first the peer reviewers were like, why is there, you know, why is there pesticide use being, being woven into their understanding of climate change? And I was like, this is what they're saying to me. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to try and like ignore that. This is the data. So what is the data seeing? And it actually is, is, um, is reflective of other research yeah. that is found at certain stages, climate change is understood by these proxies and, and linked to overall changes in a region, whether it's cultural, social, socioeconomic, even political. So like suddenly the whole space is opened up. It's not just weather events and their impacts, but it's actually this, this, this series of, of interlocking changes that are yes. you know, arising as climate change. So that's very, very interesting. So that's what we saw at Expert and Leading into Achiever. And then Pluralist, you probably have a, a, some sense of that. In, and this would be the postmodern greens. This is a postmodern greens. Now, because you know, your, your area that you live is, is North America, Jeff, that's, that's a different place than I was working. This was in El Salvador. So these, these people were developing pluralistic meaning-making stages in, in that context and how it was looking, which, is, which might be something that you, um, you will recognize from, from, North, from your North American community, but um, contextual understanding. So suddenly it was not just, not just that climate change is weather, not just that this is an amalgam that is, has a cause and effect logical sequence, but now it was like a place-based understanding. What does this mean for us as a people? How, if we set this in, in a context historically and generationally, what does this mean? You know, so, so the meanings were framed in that way. What is it, you know, the fact that my grandparents passed by this, 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 this region and perceived this nature, we won't have this if we continue on this trajectory. And it was a very different kind of, again, more expansive, right? It wasn't just, you know, plant more seedlings. It was like, well, if I'm going to do that, what seedling should I plant? In this ecosystem, what effect will it have contextually? Very different kind of meaning making about, yes. about an issue that, that's this complex. So yeah. what I will, what I, one aspect of, that I wanted to get to that is exciting about it is that if we're getting out of a sample um, in, say, El Salvador, if it's, you know, one third traditional, one third modern and one third postmodern, that is exciting. Like that is exciting. You know, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there, that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it feels to me as you describe this and you, and you too, Terry, that you're just in a way doing basic science. You're revealing this new strata of things and understanding that um, God knows where it's going to lead. Well, that, that's what it seems like to me because, uh, um, uh, you know, just the idea of having having uh, uh, a verified inventory targeting a particular global issue like that is, I don't think it's been done that much, if at all. And, uh, you know, it isn't that difficult to do. And it is just basic perspectives. But if people understand that there are different perspectives on this and, uh well, the, the earlier levels are not going to care, <laughs> you know, traditionalists. Yep. 
are not going to care. But uh, if there's empirical evidence, even the the um, modernists uh, really respect empirical evidence. So that's that sh should have some kind of an effect on them. And certainly the qualitative part will have a big effect on the pluralists. Then we go into the uh, teal level, the strategist level, which is, you know, is able to see development for the first time. And, and this I is what we call the integral level. Yes. The what I do anyway. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And once, once uh, you know, uh, many of those folks are really uh, turn into being quite good leaders and, and, uh, so they will take that data and, and uh, that understanding and use it in ways that can bring people together instead of separate them. So, so uh, you know, one of the big things about that level is that they believe in developmental rights. And that is a really important thing. Uh, and yet, How would you describe that? Developmental, uh, every, well, uh, I, Graves dis, uh, described it very, very well in his, in his research. Everybody has the right to be the developmental level that they're at, and you can't punish them for being, uh, not being at a later level or, or an earlier level. They have that right, and that is developmental rights, and, and people can't see that until they get to be a teal level. And, of course, that's a, a, a really important insight to see um, as well. I think that as we see the developmental stages gradually grow up, we'll see that the people at the, at the teal level are going to have a greater effect because of that understanding, uh, because they will see that, that uh, people that are, are traditional have a right to see what they see and say what they say and not, not uh, you know, have this uh, developmental opposition because... Uh, uh, the earlier stages have that because they can't they can't tell that somebody is at a developmental level, mm -hmm. and so that to me is what is going to start bringing this divide together a yeah. lot better because there is yeah. always a way that you can help people get what they want without even having to know about the greater perspective, and people at the teal and later level can see that, and it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to get all those different levels in the same room together because that's when the fights start. Sometimes it means you use other kinds of approaches to help people get what they want and what they need and what's important to them. Uh, and it takes the wisdom of Teal and later to actually see that and see different kinds of collaborative efforts where you don't necessarily have to have people all in the same room at the same time, because then you find the differences start coming up instead of making sure that each group gets what they want and what they need. Yeah. And usually that'll work. Well. And that they get to be where they are and who they are. I love that. Devel right. Developmental rights. I hadn't heard that before, but I, yes, I, yes. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, that itself is um, such a huge developmental leap, it seems to me. Yes, it to is. not describe people who are uh, your political opponents, to not describe them as being stupid. Um, Co-opted, uh, diluted, evil. I mean, th th this is what we just naturally do to the worldviews that we're not in. That's and right. at perspective or at, at integral, we get to breathe them all in in a way. Right. It's a whole new ball game. And that I, I don't know what the how that's going to affect the world, but well, we're seeing it. And, and, you know, you guys, like I said, are doing some of the, it feels like the basic science of that. And I'm just so grateful. Yeah, and I think this kind of basic science is not difficult for 
people to understand, uh, you know, it's, it's unusual in that it uses a developmental frame, but, but people like statistical support and statistics and empirical work helps us, helps us get at and sift out what isn't important and what is important. And then the qualitative research helps people feel what it is that is going on and, and helps them relate to with their heart and their soul. And then when you put both of those together, which is what the teal does, then you get both. And so you can satisfy with that research, you can satisfy the, the, uh, uh, the, the longing that modernists have for making sure that there's statistically significant things and the longing that pluralists uh, have for uh, feeling into something that is very real to them. And uh, when you can do those two things together, uh, you can usually satisfy the needs of the traditionalists as long as you don't step on their traditional principles, which are basic principles that we all need to, uh, you know, for the most part, they're, they're the traditions. We all need to, uh, you know, um, um, step into most of those kinds of ethics anyway. Thou shalt yes. not kill, thou shalt not steal. That yes, is, yeah. Dignity yeah. and yeah. honor and all of those things, Absolutely. you know, patriotism, yeah. gratitude. Absolutely. Um, these, there's a lot that the traditionalist, the traditionalist worldview has that the postmodern worldview has lost. Uh, and, you know, the integral worldview gets to bring them together yes. in a way that is so exciting. Well, one thing about the integral worldview and the, and the, uh, the 4.5 strategist teal level is that they uh, both the traditionalists and the teal level develop principles and we know what the principles are for the most part uh, that are more global and worldwide there are individual groups that have different principles but almost all of our traditional spiritual paths have very basic a love your neighbor as yourself type of principles that that fit us all and will yes. always fit us all but the thing that the, the principles that develop at the teal level are developmental principles it's like this, I mean, one of those principles is everybody has a right to be at the developmental level that they're at. And every principle they have has a developmental twist to it so that it can work with every level. So it upgrades them into a much greater uh, process that uh, allows everybody to experience developmentally what, what these principles can actually help you yeah. uh, experience. Yes, indeed. Uh, Gail, well, how are people receiving this and hmm. what's going on in terms of the just sort Good, of immediate yeah. response here? Well, one immediate response is that getting back to what you said about, about, about science, doing basic science, um, there's one thing to create a theory and there's quite another research process to test the theory and to develop the theory. And I feel like that requires that, that, that empirical of a theory and like double fit it. Does it work? Why not? You know, in which ways does it work? And can we develop that further? So I feel like I was, I've been thinking about this over the past few days. That's really characterizes at least this part of my dissertation is de I'm, develop I'm, I'm seeking to test and develop this theory um, in relation to climate change. In terms of where I think it's landing, um, well, it's literally to say in terms of my work, I'm hoping it'll land and like actually invite this knowledge set into the research community. I'm looking at climate change adaptation. Um, but I've also just wanted to say that 
you know, we're seeing movements and activism that is starting to take up this developmental understanding. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's so back-ended, it's so backdropped that people aren't necessarily leading with it. But I, I recently found out that the Extinction Rebellion movement, which you probably are aware of, who the leader, like the founder of that, Gail Broad, um, Broad, Broadbrook, I think her name's Broadbrook, um, she was describing the teal emergence, the teal worldview and the leap to teal on an, on an interview fairly recently. But yeah, she mentions broad dynamics. She also apparently mentioned your podcast. You oh, know, for so, heaven's sakes. I know. And so like, this is, these ideas are getting out there. Yeah. You know, and and it's not, this, is no, this is no little drop of the bucket. I mean, these are widespread movements. Yeah. So you know, we'll, we'll test the theories and we'll develop them and we'll do some basic science and some qualitative research and we'll get it out there yeah. as we can. And it'll start to just go there anyway, right? Exactly. Well, if we're right about this, it's the next stage of human history, you know, where we yeah. start bridging these divides. And yeah. Yeah. So cool. So anything else, Gail, that you'd like to put on the table before we close it out? I think this has been really fascinating. Cool. I'm so glad to hear it. I really enjoyed talking to you both. I, the things I, I might want to mention is that, and it's a bit in regards to where this might, you know, where this is going or how this is landing. And it's really just an invitation. I really want us to be able to see ourselves better. Those, you know, those of us who are seeking to bring these ideas in to the area of climate change or any of the global, you know, global issues that are sort of knocking on our door. So just really as an invitation to you know, be ideally this interview can kind of be a way that we can we can greater see each other and get yes. together on that. I, I do sit on the board of a nonprofit organization called Integral Without Borders. Um, and we, um, just to say that it, this will be in Spanish in, um, for those listeners who speak Spanish, but we're starting another round um, of a course with our Colombian and Argentinian partners. And it's called um, the Design of Integral Projects for Social Transformation. So it's very much in line with what we've been talking about. But then when you get when you get you know out of science and into projects, like how do you design them for social transformation? In Spanish, with um, Centro Integral Colombia, and also which is from Bogota, and also WETU, which is an, an Argentinian online uh, online education organization. So that's right. starting November eighteenth. And if anybody would be interested in that, then then uh, get in touch with Integral Without Borders. Great. And I, I, I must say, I'm a little bit stuck on your, um, I'm thinking maybe I'll make this the title of this episode, mm -hmm. Adaptation into Transformation. Mm -hmm. And let me just have a little bit more on yeah. that. Sure. Well, it's really interesting that um, adaptation is uh, largely practiced and well, defined and practiced as a technical endeavor, what we call techno-managerial. It's like, let's put in new technologies and make people do things differently. Right, this you is know, basically the right-hand quadrants, the absolutely. behavioral and the systems quadrants, the exteriors of reality. Absolutely. So it's, you know, that's what it is. And yet many people are saying, you know, that's really insufficient. We can, we can do that all we want, but if we're not gonna get at these deeper, you know, psychosocial issues, these, these are the real barriers to effective adaptation. And so what's happened since about 2014, the IPCC started using the term transformation alongside adaptation. Now I can attest that like 
people died getting those words in there, like to get transformation <laughs> in that document. I mean, that's a bit extreme, but like, that was how it was described to me. It was not easy. Right. But it's in there. And so what we, what we have now is these terms side by side, but they're very different concepts. So adaptation is in a way, how do we adapt? How do we take climate change essentially as a given and adapt ourselves to it? You know, and so, and that largely is kind of understood as, you know, technical transformation is like, wait a second, you know, we need to, we, in order to adapt effectively, we need a transformative change in the structures and systems, in the practices and in the meaning making that we run society, like in how we participate in society. And so that is a very different agenda, if you, if you, if you will. Yeah. So, so it's fantastic we have these two, but in my estimation, they're still uncomfortably too distant. Yeah. Right? So yeah. we need to, yeah. But at least to, they're there. Absolutely. You know, at like least the, they got yeah. them in the document. Absolutely. It's so, it's, it's a very exciting time in that sense. Yeah. You know, and then, and then since 2014, now we're five years later, more and more we're hearing that call for transformative change. And it's not just out of IPCC, it's also out of IPBES, so the Intergovernmental Panel um, for um, Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So that's like the biodiversity loss component, you know, intergovernmental panel. Right on, they're, yes. They're saying it equally as, as, as um, clearly that we yeah. need this. So it's, you know, in a way that's really exciting. If we were to, so I noticed that people, when they start with transformation, it's almost too overwhelming. Like, what, what are we talking about? It's like everything all at once. Um, it's, it's like a polycentric, dynamic systems change agenda. And whoa, 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 what is that? And it can easily become metaphor. It can easily become philosophical calls for something that isn't grounded in a practice, right? No. So, so my thought was, this is another piece, you know, a contextual piece of my dissertation is, if we were to start with adaptation, and actually just fill out the quadrants at least. So instead of just it being the, the, the right-hand quadrants, but also the left, and we have research into these um, psychosocial adaptive capacities, they're actually called subjective adaptive capacities or intersubjective adaptive capacity. What if we all got those on the same page? You know, the, the theory, the integral theory suggested as you do that, it generates transformation right. exactly you know so like i and i don't know if that would be the case or not but yeah so i don't know if 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 like without getting into it, those claims let's just stay with doing that and see yeah. what would happen yeah fantastic no absolutely you do that and i'll make the claims in the meantime <laughs> so terry how what do you see as you look at the higher stages particularly as it relates to climate change so what what we know in our research that people at the at the transpersonal stage can do is that they they can look at systems and they can look at global systems very large global systems and they can see one part of the global system that isn't working and then they can look around the world and say oh here's here's another piece let's just take that piece out that doesn't work and let's stick this piece in 
oh, well, now I see what happens. Uh, you know, the whole system reconfigures when I put that part of the system is. And now I've got another part of the system that doesn't work so well. That may take that part out. And I look around the world and I find another one. Oh, well, look at if I put this in here. So they see how individually they can imagine in their own minds reconstructing a global system that might be healthy and ethical for everyone in the world. And uh, they may want to have more freedom to do that which they won't have if they are only allowed to deal with the social construction of reality that we have right now at 4.0 and 4.5. Which is postmodern green. Yes, yeah. yes. Right. So, I, I mean, my thought is that it's possible that, that they will want to uh, shift the structural aspects of governing that we have that that uh, 4.0 and 4.5, the teal and, and pluralist level have, shift the level of governing to give them some more individual freedom to actually dream up in their mind, construct in their mind whole systems that they can see uh, evolving through time with evolution being a part of the actual process that of the systems that they have, automatic evolution. I mean, all of that can come into being and they can do it at an individual level. And some of the geniuses we have are already imagining yeah. these things, but they're held back in some ways by the systems that are so, by, you know, by the very nature of, of uh, you know, our world the way it is today, it's really difficult to con deconstruct them, you know, like yeah. our money system and our, you know, all of these sorts yeah. of things. Well, welcome to human history. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> you know, that's right. But so, imagining it is significant. Yes. Imagination is a real thing. Yes. And it clears away the field so that we can yes. actually think. In yes. New ways. In, new, in new creative ways and, and allows you to have a space to actually implement something like that. So uh, that would be the next step. And then when we get to 6.0 and 6.5, we have the new MetaWare Collective, which is really everything. <laughs> And, and it also deals with more of a timeless, boundless setting. Uh, the states and stages start coming together quite a bit at those two levels. So uh, one can only uh, massage their own imagination to see what we would have if that kind of thing would come into being. But that's a little bit of what I'm yeah. seeing. And I don't know whether it will happen or not, but I'm just looking at the repeating patterns. You yeah. know, that's well. all. <laughs> it's, it's important to think about it. It's, you know, it's part of bringing it into being. Mm -hmm. Right on. I'm just filled with gratitude for uh, for this conversation, Jeff. Uh, you are a wonderful moderator. You you dig things out of us we didn't know we had, and uh, <laughs> I, I love that. True. It's yeah. very true. Uh, well, thank you so much. And it, again, it's my privilege to do this, and I leave this conversation far more encouraged that things actually are a little further along than I thought. I think so. You know, I think my listeners will have that same experience. Yeah. And so we're all grateful to you and your work. Terry O'Fallon and Gail Hachachka, uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, Terry. Bye bye.